You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. Today, I have the, the great honor of sitting down with Mitch Kapor. Mitch was one of the earliest Silicon Valley success stories, having founded the Lotus Development Corporation in the early 80s and designed Lotus 123, which was uh, one of the driving forces behind making personal computers ubiquitous. Mitch co-founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation back in 1990 a nonprofit dedicated to protecting digital rights and user privacy on the internet, um, which looks more and more prescient by the day. He was the founding chair of the Mozilla Foundation, which created Firefox, the internet web browser, and he founded Kapor Capital back in 2009, and then shortly thereafter pivoted to invest exclusively in, in social enterprises, another move that that I think hopefully will, will look, uh, look like it was well ahead of its time. Mitch, thank you very much for sitting down with me and welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here. So as I mentioned during the intro, you founded Kapor Capital in 2009. And in 2011, you shifted your investment philosophy to invest exclusively in social enterprises. Uh, why? What was the the impetus for that decision? Well, maybe it would be a little bit more precise to say what happened was I had a long-standing practice as an angel investor going back to the 80s. And beginning around 2008, 2009, that intensified, brought some other people on to work with me and started experimenting. And at that time, Frida, my my wife and partner, was really providing a lot of encouragement to think carefully about the social impact of the companies that we were investing in. Were they making the world better? Were they making it worse? And by 2011, we'd really decided to go all in on an experiment in which everything we did would have positive impact in a very specific sense. We were looking for companies that would close gaps of access or opportunity or outcome for underserved communities. I was a little skeptical, but really wanted to try it. And so since 2011, it's like a hundred some companies later, we've really turned it into um, a very successful venture firm on that premise. You mentioned that you were skeptical. Um, how did you think that, that it was going to work out when you started and, and how has it worked out? Well, the thing that was appealing about doing it, I should say, was to do investing in a way that aligned with my own values and what I believed in. I think that the growing income inequality and wealth inequality is really undermining the entire foundation of our society and is just unacceptable. My skepticism 
came from concern that if we applied those criteria, we wouldn't get into any interesting deals. <laughs> and so I understand what other people feel that way. What actually happened was as it became more and more clear to entrepreneurs that Capor Capital wanted to work with kick-ass founders building great businesses that had mission at the center of them and that were trying to close gaps, our deal flow went through the roof because there was latent demand <laughs> out there for founders to find inv uh, aligned investors. And they were all being coached, leave that stuff out of your deck, never talk about it, you'll never get funded. And when we showed up, they, 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 they flocked to us. And so the result is that we are involved with all of these great companies and our financial results to date, 2011 through 2018, put us at the top of the class. And that's what we published in our impact report, both what kinds of gap closing impacts these companies were having and our financial returns. And the reason, if I could say, we did that was specifically to challenge a myth that if you invest for impact, you're necessarily compromising your economic returns. Our data says otherwise. When we benchmark our results against industry standard benchmarks like Cambridge Associates, we perform in the top quarter of all funds of comparable size, regardless of investment thesis. So, yeah, I would say our experiment is proving to be a success. <laughs> Sounds like it. So instead of it, it shrinking the pool of potential companies, it actually grew the pool. It grew the pool, that's right. And, and it gave us a competitive advantage over other investors <laughs> because entrepreneurs want to work with investors that are aligned around both building economic and social value simultaneously. Was your only concern going in that, that you were going to shrink the number of, of viable companies that you could invest in? Well, that was, that was the, the principal concern. Um, you know, I've been quite successful as an angel investor early on in personal computer software and internet and streaming media. I didn't know how we would perform as a team uh, on a sustained basis. We just hadn't done that before. There's quite a difference between angel investing and having a fund. But... Um, I think those are normal concerns of anybody doing a fund for the first time. What was the point when you were like, okay, this is, this is going to work? Was there a specific portfolio company or, or when did you have that realization? Well, what I would say is I could see year by year our investment practice was getting stronger that we were able to articulate and refine our criteria uh, in a way that 
we could clearly signal what we were interested in. We had strong and consistent criteria to evaluate investment opportunities and make decisions, and that we were able to do a better job supporting companies post-investment. So we kept adding to our methodologies. For instance, in 2016, we started what we call the Capital Capital Founders Commitment. We will invest only when the founders make a commitment to build a company with a diverse workforce and an inclusive culture. We don't set goals or targets or numbers. They set their own goals and plans. We help them. We do training and give them access to resources and, and, and do a number of things. But the reason, well, there are a number of reasons we did that, but the important point here is it became clear that um, there is a lot of talent out there that is not being funded to start companies, is not being hired to work in companies because they don't look like or have the similar background to the sort of Silicon Valley stereotypes. But the lived experience of entrepreneurs and founders and people who join early is really material to the extent people have overcome challenges and barriers in their own lives and that their lived experience reflects problems that really need solving, creative entrepreneurs see that as an opportunity. And we want to invest in and build companies where the talent recognizes and takes advantage of, of all of that. And we want to help companies do that. What does that look like in practice? Like trying to find entrepreneurs with a, a lived experience that you you know, believe will lead them to be successful? Well, we cast the net uh, widely. We go to uh, places and networks of entrepreneurs, perhaps that others uh, don't. We actually, it starts with the diversity on our own team, which is uh, far and away majority uh, people of color, uh, more than half women. So the people around the investment decision-making table don't look like venture capital. They look like America. <laughs> and they also look like the kinds of entrepreneurs that we're interested in attracting. And there's a natural... If, if you're an entrepreneur from an underrepresented group, I mean, which might be a woman of any background, you might be African-American, Latinx, and, and so on. I think it's incredibly intimidating and a turnoff if you show up in a pitch meeting and there's like, you know, five white guys with, you know, Stanford MBAs, you're going to be thinking, do they get me? Do they understand me? You know, do they understand what I bring in the opportunity or are they, you know, do they, you know, does their filter, which they're not even aware of, screen me out. So they will naturally be, I mean, if founders are looking for investors who I think recognize them, appreciate them, get them and who they are and what they're trying to do. Does that become an issue at later stages? I mean, you mentioned the, the founder's commitment that you have them yeah. sign and yeah. um, you're investing it at, at seed stage. So, you know, for series A, series B, how are you combating against you know, mission creep or, or them running up to the same against the same sort of institutional issues that you're hoping to to uh, subvert. 
Well, that, that's a great question. And we spend a lot of time, we have always spent time coaching founders on how to raise their Series A. In other words, what milestones they, they, they need to uh, accomplish along the way. And we put a lot of effort into helping them I recognize and identify aligned investors, telling them that they ought to be concerned with making sure that the investors that they bring onto their cap table are going to re respect the mission. Because, if, first of all, if it's never discussed, <laughs> then it can be a very rude and unpleasant surprise for a founder. <laughs> things start, you raise your A, things start going running into difficulty as you know most often they do and what happens your board members they want to throw you out oh let's bring in a real hardcore season executive here or they or they'll keep you but they say dump the mission part of this is just getting in the way so we help a people anticipate that have discussions up front about it uh try to secure agreements uh and understandings with investors, look for those who are more aligned. But I will tell you it's still an issue because there is not enough aligned downstream capital. There is some, and there are some great firms, and we, 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 we steer people to them and great individual investors. But A, there ought to be more, and B, we are now thinking about how you could bake the impact commitment into the DNA of the company legally with some teeth in it. And so we're exploring, no commitment yet. Don't know if we're going to, you know, how we're going to thread this needle. But if there were a way to basically be a kind of public benefit corporation, which now most states have, I'm not talking about B Corp. That's a certification by a nonprofit. That, that, that's its own thing. I'm talking about the legal status of a public benefit corporation. If there's a way to put mission into that, that would, and so that any capital that comes in downstream has to be on board with that, that would be the next big move. And I already know there will be skepticism. Well, if I do that, I'm not going to be able to raise money, <laughs> which is analogous to the fear that we had when we were starting out. Well, if we put impact into our investment criteria, we're not going to get in any good deals. So I don't have a, a crystal ball. But what I'll tell you is for us at Cape Or Capital, we see part of our job is pushing the edge of the envelope of the VC ecosystem. So we were the first with a founder's commitment. Now, there's quite a few firms that have that or something similar to that or are thinking about it or are, you know, moving, moving in that direction. So to your point about some of the challenges of the, the VC ecosystem, and, and yeah. you mentioned a couple minutes ago about, um, you know, seeing entrepreneurs being pushed out of their own companies because, you know, by investors, there, there are a lot of, of criticisms with the VC model um, do you have any concerns with that model as a means to, to accomplish your goal of, of closing gaps to, to access opportunity and, and outcomes? Um, well, sure. 
I mean, in the impact report, we talk about ways in which the current venture capital system is really dysfunctional, if not broken, in, in particular ways. I mean, only being interested in financial returns and not considering the full range of impacts that companies have on all of their stakeholders, on their employees, on communities, on customers, that's just um, not sustainable in the long term. And, uh, but that is, by and large, the way the system works today. We think that that needs to change. Uh, we think that that uh, will change. Uh, right now, too much money is being stuffed into companies in order to either make them huge or go out of business entirely. This is not well aligned with what entrepreneurs want to do and this sort of boomer bust mentality and growth at all cost mentality in parts of the VC ecosystem is also extremely problematic. And, you know, the, the sheer lack of diversity in who the general partners are of these firms is, is now recognized as being deeply problematic uh, for, you know, for multiple reasons. So, yeah, this, there needs to be a VC 2.0. But it's the ecosystem <laughs> that, that has to do it. We're not, we are going to do what we're doing, and we're pretty transparent about that. Uh, and, and we want to be part of change, but we're not the change agent or anything like that. I mean, you're investing in seed stage startups, yeah. which are, are years away from an exit scenario, Correct. especially nowadays where companies are, yeah. are staying private even longer. Um, so most of the results that you're reporting are, are as yet unrealized. Why was it so important to you and your team to, to make them public and to get the results out there? Well, first of all, you're right. It's now like it could be 12 years, even 15 years before there's a full set of outcomes from a fund. There's just a very long time. We're more than halfway through that. We have had some uh, exits with, uh, you know, um, li liquidity. Uh, uh, but most of it, as you say, is still illiquid. It's, it's on paper. But look, it's eight years at 103 companies in multiple sectors in ed tech and fintech and workplace and justice and health. And they all show the same kind of results. It's not just a one-off. This isn't, you don't get where we've gotten by, by accident. We thought that there was enough data <laughs> uh, that merited talking about it and showing it. And, we, and, the, and we're confident enough the ultimate outcomes are going to be uh, pretty consistent with it, that we wanted to advance the... The, the, the discourse um, on this. And we wanted to put down a challenge. We, we, this myth that financial, that of compromise and sacrifice of returns if you go in the direction of, of mission or, or gap closing, really that was the single biggest reason we did this. We have this huge body of data that says that doesn't have to be the case. So let's not say it is. It's a pretty good, it's a provocation. It's a pretty good Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's 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 why now. And by the way, 
just so people understand, the listeners here, uh, our results do not, these results we published do not include the gains on Uber. We were seed stage Uber investors, but in 2009, before we went all in on impact, and mm -hmm. uh, we aren't counting it at all. I mean, Uber is its own interesting story, but uh, our 103 companies and our top quartile returns completely exclude uh, Uber. So, you know, you mentioned earlier some of the challenges with, with venture capital and, and your desire for, for VC 2.0. Um, yeah. And as I mentioned during the intro, I mean, you were you were a pretty early Silicon Valley like tech entrepreneur success story. Do you have any concerns about the state of of Silicon Valley and and the tech companies now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there is still much too much chasing after unicorns, people trying to grow really fast, raise a lot of money, and, and to what end? And, and, and what are they, are they creating that has value? And just hyper growth itself, the ready availability of money and the high valuations and the pressures on founders, that is not, that whole dynamic uh, is uh, not sustainable. The ways in which there are still stereotypes about who what a successful founder looks like, you know, sort of like Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, that's not, that's not right. Genius is evenly distributed by zip code. I like to say, and opportunity is not. And so how does Silicon Valley do a better job uh, surfacing, supporting and investing in uh, talent uh, from, from all quarters, regardless of, what it looks like, and how to make the investors themselves more resemble um, <laughs> America and the world, not just a bunch of white and Asian guys. And, and, and on this point, I see the ways in which uh, VC firms are adding women partners in the last year plus, of which there have been many, as perhaps being problematic in the sense that many firms are adding women who in every respect other than gender are exactly the same as the guys around the table already in terms of their socioeconomic background and the schools that they went to and the experiences that they've had. Uh, they're not uh, really representative. And the, 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 the general partnerships are not becoming, uh, you know, really diverse in the sense of in more fully including underrepresented groups. Not yet. Not going to happen overnight, but to the extent that people think, oh, we'll hire a woman partner, check the box, we're done, we're diverse, that's self-delusion. Yeah, so. and you've, you've done a really amazing job of that at Kport Capital, and I, I imagine that's part of the reason why you are excited to 
to um, report the the results that that we alluded to earlier, but I don't think we really got into. I mean, could you give us a quick kind of rundown of, of what you've seen during the first eight years of, of uh, your first 102 investments, I think it was? Sure. Uh, in terms of the financial results or the impact? Well, so we looked at the returns to date using the kind of measures the industry benchmarks itself, the financial measures, uh, with uh, and compared our results to those from Cambridge Associates and, and, and PitchBook. And uh, we were top of the class, top, top quartile, which is the sort of where you want to be if you are trying to raise uh, capital from, you know, uh, uh, limited uh, limited partners. So um, that that was a very strong result, and we have companies that are making very material changes in the world. So, for instance, LendUp, which is an alternative to payday lending, uh, has helped several tens of thousands of people graduate from these very high interest payday loans back into the mainstream credit system. And they've done that because their approach to it is if you have a loan and you repay it, they are the only people in that entire sector to report that back to the credit bureaus. So you rebuild a payment history. Well, moving tens of thousands of people in that fashion is saving hundreds of millions of dollars in excess in, in, in interest and fees that they'd otherwise be paying that is then available to them to support families and buy food and pay rent or mortgage. I mean, that is you know closing a gap of financial access in a major way. And we have the report itself highlighted a dozen or so companies with key statistics like that, and, but we have a lot of depth on the on 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 the bench. So, yeah, there's gap closing, social impact, and financial returns. That's what we're about. So the the financial returns is yeah. top quartile, as you mentioned. Um, and you can you know that because you're benchmarking it against PitchBook and, and Cambridge Associates. Yeah. So obviously, for, for impact, we don't have that yet. I mean, how do you, is there some way you try to benchmark it or, or, or gauge um, impact of your, your portfolio? Yes, because we, from the get-go with every company, are asking ourselves and the founders, Okay, if this works, who is going to benefit and how? What are your measures? Uh, and does it raise up people at the bottom and bring the top and the bottom closer together? Or does it drive them further apart? And is that dynamic of gap closing tied to your business model and tied to your economics? Uh, you know, sometimes you see companies say, okay, well, every time we sell one of X, we give one away for free. That's not a bad thing, but that's a weak connection in the business model because you could decide one day to stop doing that and you're done. Whereas with something like 
LendUp, which I was talking about a minute ago. I mean, the entire system of decreasing interest rates over time and reporting credit scores back, that is their model. And so the more business they do, the more impact they have. What there isn't is a single universal measure or score. Oh, well, this is an 86 on impact. We, we're not in a world today, and we may never be in one, where it's possible to compare things, particularly across sectors, to um, measure the impact in a way that you can be confident you're actually measuring something meaningful. I mean, we can't even do that for IQ. For intelligence, you know, people, we, we, we can't, we, you know, and we're seeing that when we try to boil everything down to a score, uh, it actually leaves a lot out. So we're not, we're trying to be serious about impact and look at it uh, a, a company at a time, a sector at a time, because clearly there are commonalities across ed tech companies. They're serving K-12, like what are they doing for reading scores? And there are standardized tests there. So we're not ignoring or disrespectful of that. But I want to challenge the notion that, well, we don't really know about impact until we can have a single, you know, quantitative score that it's, it's just not. Yeah. Not gonna yeah, happen. there are some companies that are trying to do that, like, you know, TPG yeah. with the impact multiple of money. And, yeah. and, you know, years ago, the Robin Hood Foundation with their SROI work. Yeah, right. And I have to say it's well-intentioned, but I don't think on the whole it's a good use of time and effort. In particular, trying to quantify the dollar value of the impact requires you to make sets of assumptions about the worth of a human life <laughs> or parts of it that I think are just metaphysically indefensible. I know it happens all the time, but that doesn't make it right. It doesn't actually make it meaningful. We can just garbage in, garbage out. So I'm not saying don't do it at all, but I am trying to take a very tempered view of the value of all that. Yeah, I spoke with um, Dave Kirkpatrick at SJF a couple months ago, and he was saying he thought it was a little like putting too many significant digits on a on a number. Right. Yeah, yeah it was sort of like saying, yes, <laughs> I know I could tell you the exact age of the Grand Canyon. It's 10 million and 30 years old. And how do I know that? Well, because when I visited it 30 years ago, they told me it was 10 million years old, and now it's 30 years later. No, the math does not work like that. <laughs> Too many, yeah, too many significant digits. One last question for you. Yeah. You've done a lot of amazing work, obviously, with, with K-Port Capital, and you've been uh, a pioneer in this, this industry. What, what can people who, who don't have your resources, uh, how can they get involved? Well, if we're talking about people anywhere in the tech ecosystem, then I think wherever someone is, you can always do something. I mean, for instance, if you're in college or going into the job market and you're doing something, anything in, in tech, you can ask questions about your employer and what they stand for. And is the culture a positive one that supports its people? And that, is it creating value, uh, you know, for the world or not? Um, you can make choices about that. Uh, not an infinite range of choices, but 
you are making a choice if you go to work for a big company that is doing bad things in the world. Uh, so, you know, even just coming into the uh, into the job market where you don't have a lot of power, you're just looking for a job. You 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 know, you have mm-hmm. choice. You have choice in, and I think one of the encouraging things, by the way, is the fact that twenty thousand Google employees had a walkout uh, around this crazy settlement that they did for $90 million for this executive that got pushed out for sexual harassment and, and, and a set of issues like that. I don't remember any other time where there were employees were organizing themselves to do that, to send a message that their management is out of touch. So if you're already, you know, uh, an employee, you can, you know, you can find ways of speaking up and the climate is in, you know, is in your favor. You have choice about what products you use. Oh, and you have choice what you post on social media. And if you add, if you let your moral outrage carry the day and you just use it to ventilate, but you wind up calling the other side names and impugning their motivations and just unloading and encouraging other people to do that and resharing stuff. I don't care if you're on the Fox News side or the MSNBC News side or any of the other sides, stop it. <laughs> you don't have to do that. Uh, and you could do something more constructive and it would make a difference. So at least be thoughtful and don't be on autopilot around when you, when you send off a blast. So lots of things to do everywhere. Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and for all the great work that you've done to, to push this industry forward. I, I genuinely appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning. For a copy of the Impact Report discussed, along with some news about the other great work that Kapor Capital is doing, check out the blog post we published about this episode at socialcapitalmarkets.net. We have some really exciting events coming up in the next couple months that I'd like to mention real quick. We have Spectrum on June 12th and 13th in Atlanta, and we have two more events coming up in Baltimore in the next two months for our 30-part breakfast series on building community wealth. You can find out more information about all three of those events at our website. Lastly, if you have any feedback for us or ideas for the show, we'd love to hear from you at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode on civic engagement. Lindsay had the opportunity to sit down with David Wertheimer from the Gates Foundation and Caesar McDowell and Ayushi Roy from MIT to talk about the work that those two organizations are doing. It was a really interesting conversation, so... Keep your eye out for that one in two weeks. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.